Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. I'm Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. And we are on the eve of SCMS here. Hello, Atlanta! Hello, Atlanta! Yeah, in fact, many of you may be hearing us, hopefully not for the first time in Atlanta, but that's entirely possible. We uh, we need to work better to promote us- ourselves, I think. So. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so we usually do something tied to SEMS. Uh, we usually have sort of a little preview or something like that, but I don't know where the time went. Somehow, like, next weekend is SEMS, and so we don't have and anything. I, what I can't understand is why they scheduled the conference in January this year. Yeah. It's just... Well, Michael, yeah. we should we should talk. Yeah. <laughs> right? We should complain, right? It's almost April. Like I said, <laughs> why did they schedule the conference in Seriously, where does the time go? I don't even... Yeah, and it seems like this happens every year, and I'm sure it's the same every time. But every year I feel like, God, it went a little bit faster this year, and here we are, and I've still got work to do. I'm like Einstein do. on a bicycle, you know, like in, going through outer space and time travel. And are you on cold beds or something? Yeah, where is this? you know I yeah. am. Poor Michael's been sick the last week, so... Or two weeks, or... Relativity has, <laughs> relativity has has taken hold. Okay. Well, we do not have, then, an Atlanta preview for you, which is just as well, because some of you will only be hearing this, you know, when you're already at SCMS and already cooking. But what we do have for you is a couple of really great pieces we think the entire SCMS uh, membership will enjoy. And uh, neither of us are involved in these. We have no, uh, other people. We are just the, yeah. the, the gatekeepers. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, this is quite a luxury. And one of these, you haven't heard his voice for a while now, Bill Kirkpatrick. He's back. He is back. He attended the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference held in late February in Washington, D.C. And I won't say much more about that because basically his piece covers it all. Um, but he was at the conference, got some great interviews, some great information. And this sounded like an amazing conference. Let's give it a listen. All right. Janis Joplin singing uh, her own composition, Turtle Blues. Uh, She perhaps is the most popular of all the uh, young white blues singers today. And uh, we pick up with a conversation in the very crowded, uh, improvised dressing room. Her uh, coterie is about her as various other rock artists are passing through the corridor. That's a tune. Uh, I wrote it. Just I wrote it in Port Arthur, as a matter of fact. It's uh, just an old-time 12-bar blues, the kind that uh, Bessie Smith, everybody used to sing. That's where that's what I, it reminds me of. Turtle blues, my version. I sing that's because I used to sing just like Bessie Smith. I copied her for years. And you can tell like that. I don't sing like that anymore. That, of course, was Janis Joplin talking with the great Studs Turkle on WFMT, a local Chicago radio station, in 1970. And if you're like me, there is something magical about getting to hear Janis Joplin speak. And you've got the dressing room and you've got all this stuff going on around her. 
And she's speaking a little faster than you're used to hearing her sound. I have a theory about that for another time. But the power of the human voice to, to establish that connection and take you right back into that dressing room, it's an extraordinary thing. And we're incredibly lucky because WFMT saved some 9,000 hours of Studs Terkel's interviews going back to 1952, including this one, and they're now being digitized and made available online. Unfortunately, for most of our radio heritage, we are not so lucky. And that's where the Radio Preservation Task Force comes in. The Radio Preservation Task Force is a mammoth undertaking involving dozens of institutions and hundreds of volunteers, including many scholars who are SCMS members, and they're seeking to track down and identify radio recordings and preserve them before they get destroyed forever. Josh Shepard, a broadcast historian at Catholic University, is one of the leaders of the project. As the National Research Director and having privy to this information, my guess would be that we've lost over 90% of our historical radio recordings for a variety of reasons. I would say a safe number, 75%. And frankly, we had a conversation recently in which we speculated the number is probably more than 90%. So when you put that into account, we've probably lost tens to tens of millions of recordings over time. And I don't, I don't even know how to speculate the number. I'm sure there's a way to create an algorithm to figure out a precise number. I did very poorly on my math section in the GRE. Um, but it's, it's so many millions of recordings that are gone that it's a tragedy. Film scholars obviously know the challenges in trying to preserve rare and old film. Radio recordings aren't flammable, but for a range of reasons, the radio archive may be even more precarious. Obviously, there's nothing we can do about radio that was never recorded in the first place. But the tragic irony is that even for radio that was recorded, many of these recordings were destroyed quite recently. So the Telecommunications Act of 1996, uh, penned by Bill Clinton, got rid of uh, restrictions on ownership per market, which led to what they call consolidation. And amongst consolidation, the purchasing of stations led to either the moving to new sites multiple stations even coming out of one like digital site, or they just simply threw away the radio materials to open up the space. And by opening up that space, maybe that was really actually financially viable for them because why should they take on this additional charge of, uh, in, in, from their perspective, <laughs> of holding on to 18,000 dats in reel-to-reels when they don't even have the technology because it's obsolescent. So what happened is after 96 and in the last 20 years, I would guess that there's, um, I don't know if the entirety of this happened in that period of time of what was saved, but a huge and rapidly increasing uh, degringolade of uh, destruction of materials has been going on since the 90s. The irony of the recordings we don't have from the 1940s is they were probably destroyed in the 2000s. This wide-scale destruction of our radio heritage is exactly what the Radio Preservation Task Force is attempting to put a stop to. As you might imagine, it is a mammoth multi-year, multi-step project. Step one has been hundreds of volunteers around the country just picking up the phone and calling historical societies, libraries, museums, radio stations, and asking what kinds of recordings might you still have available, what's hiding in your vaults, and compiling a list of what might even still be out there that could be preserved. Step two was a conference held in late February at the Library of Congress and the Library of American Broadcasting, which brought together hundreds of scholars, archivists, librarians, collectors, and fans to talk about what they found and to strategize next steps for preserving that material. Sonia Williams, a scholar at Howard University who just published a book on Richard Durham, an African-American radio pioneer, 
was at the conference and participated on a panel exploring the particular challenges of race and the radio archive. Researching can be hard anyway. But when you start talking about race, whether it's about African-Americans or Latinos or Asians or, you know, other people of color, sometimes even folks from that culture don't necessarily see the value of saving that quote-unquote old-timey stuff. Well, this is just what we do and, you know, what makes it special, so why should I keep these tapes from my grandmother, grandfather, whoever? And then you have the larger culture that says, well, is that really important? Why should we care? (laughs) What's, you know, what's the big deal? And the big deal is that it documents life in this country with all its variety and wonderfulness and the discrimination that many of us have had to deal with. And the whole idea that what goes into archives? (laughs) <laughs> in the case of uh, the, panel, uh, the panelists who talked about Jamaica and her, the research that she's doing about what existed in the National Archives of Jamaica, what has been pilfered because, you know, regimes change and people who were running the um, archives change and the, the movement of one, say, from one place to another, things that get lost or stolen, And if they are lost and lost for good, then can you recreate that? (laughs) How do you find out? How do you document that? As she said, she's not a a criminal (laughs) investigator. She's just trying to document the culture and talk about it as best she can. But it does raise the question, if there is going to be an archive, the archives need to represent everyone. And then we need to make sure that the archives are preserved themselves so that the material in them doesn't get lost into some hole somewhere and nobody can can ever find them. Josh Shepard clarified from his perspective what's at stake in the task force's efforts. What we find is this non-theatrical radio is really the prime stuff uh, in terms of what you might call a new subdiscipline of non-theatrical sound studies because... A lot of different events that you might think would turn up in the paper trail go empty. Uh, What we find is that radio sounds sometimes pick up where primary documents leave off in the archive. It creates an entirely new archive that especially speaks to different marginalized and subjugated experiences um, that have either not been granted space in an archive or simply uh, hadn't saved the materials for whatever historical reason. So when we come up with certain events, you think of like civil rights radio in Chicago and Indianapolis. You think of, uh, for example, Pacifica has the very first gay marriage uh, in California taped in its completion. The entire ceremony was aired over the course of a day, and they taped the entire ceremony. In 50 years, that's going to be a major historical event. And then we especially should be paying attention to local histories that we don't know about yet. And what we're finding is uh, you might have, think of a movie like Best Years of Our Lives, people coming home from the war who are injured and doing interviews on local public forums and town hall meetings in Akron, Ohio, and someone saved those tapes, and boy, you could really begin to look at the phenomenon of that kind of experience, post-war experience, uh, in ways that have been partially chronicled, but maybe not in the specificity of a state history, local history, regional history. And in that way, we can begin to go from the bottom up and cobble together a larger history. 
In addition to organizing the efforts of all those radio and sound scholars, Josh and the director of the Radio Preservation Task Force, Chris Sterling at George Washington University, have brought on board dozens of key organizations, a veritable who's who including the Smithsonian, the American Archives of Public Broadcasting, NPR, Pacifica, WNYC, the Paley Center, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and many, many more. Gerald Seligman was at the conference representing the National Recording Preservation Foundation. What we're trying to do is to become something of a charity to help support existing archives. Because, of course, there are many great archives in universities and libraries and private collections and commercial collections. So what we're seeing our role is to try to help preserve by offering grants, by helping with policy and things like that. There are many recordings that are that are coming online, especially in the music area. But they happen to be more the commercial music and not so much a broad sampling of what has been recorded in music. In terms of um, the history of broadcast and speech, spoken word and all the rest, those are in a bit more of a precarious state because there's not a tremendous commercial market. There hasn't been that infusion of funds to help preserve these things. Luckily, A lot of the universities, a lot of the broadcasters themselves, especially public broadcasting, are actively involved in trying to preserve. So the the state, you know, it varies according to area. The state of preservation of of commercially available, commercially uh, desirable recorded music is fairly good. Non-commercial music, fairly bad. And broadcasting, it's always a challenge. First of all, it's on so many different media. Second of all, some of it is on very perishable media. And there is an actual window. Many archivists believe there's a 10-year window, for example, on lacquers and other things that are chipping away and turning into shards and disappearing. So there's, there's real urgency, there's real interest, and therefore a lot of very dedicated people are interested in helping out and, and to try to you know, think their way through this whole issue of preservation. Sonia Williams knows exactly how much luck can be involved. She talks about researching her book on Richard Durham, who in the late 1940s produced the remarkable program Destination Freedom, which provided an African-American perspective on American history and current events. Luckily, and this, this kind of goes back to how is information saved? And if, if it's saved, then how do you get access to it? But for a historian by the name of J. Fred McDonald, who was, you know, a Chicagoan, really, really fine writer, too, wrote a lot of books on, on broadcast history and culture. And he was at Northwestern, and there was this box of just tapes that were just kind of hanging out there. And he asked the librarian, well, you know, what is this? He said, I don't know. We're, gonna, we're about to throw it out. And he went and listened to it, and it was Destination Freedom. Luckily, he was there at the right time, and heard what those what were on those tapes and then saved them and put them in his archive. And segregation still moves like a plague over the city and down into the hospitals where doctors segregate patients. It was on the streets of Washington that the cab came screaming around the corner and pulled up in front of a Washington hospital. It was a cold winter morning in 1945. The driver darted up the steps. The clerk saw him. Is there something wrong, mister? Yeah, there's a young lady outside my cab. She's in labor. She don't get a doctor right away. Emergency. Nurse, Dr. Phillips, emergency. Golly, I thought I wouldn't make it in time. Her husband's out there with her. 
was I scared? Did you call for emergency? Yeah, outside, yeah. Dr. Phillips, in the cab, a woman in labor. Hurry. Oh, yes, of course. Hey, you stay here, cabbie. Huh? They'll take care of her. They help me fill out these forms. Uh, her name? Well, oh, I'm not sure. You see, I was cruising by, and I heard someone call, and I stopped. It was right in the 100 block on Bryant Street, northwest. Bryant Street? Yeah. She's a Negro. She's in labor. Sorry, this hospital has strict orders not to admit me. What are you talking about? Clerk, I examined the patient. She is in labor, but, well, because of the rules, I can't bring her in. Well, that's what I've been trying to tell this guy. Driver, try to take her over to the city hospital before anything. time for that. You know it. Well, I'll get you a sheet, and you can cover her with that until you get them over to city hospital. Gerald Seligman has another story of just how precarious the archive can be. When we saw what, what happened with Hurricane Katrina and with Hurricane Sandy in New York, a lot of archives were destroyed. The worst example, of course, was New Orleans, where, for example, private collections, Fats Domino's own collection, was completely inundated. Alan Toussaint, who was really the father of more modern rhythm and blues and helped develop it through his own compositions but his own record labels, his entire archive was under order for two weeks. So one project that I've been, been developing is the idea, starting with Katrina, to try to map out where these collections are, the private ones, the commercial ones, the public ones. And in the case of Katrina, to actually work, let's say, with a university and students where we can try to, to kind of catalog what has been completely destroyed, what still exists but needs recuperation and make an an order of priority and then work on getting grants to try to preserve this. One of the great things for me as a participant in the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference in February was the way that it brought together not just scholars, but also archivists, librarians, collectors, and fans. I didn't get a chance to talk with Martin Grams, who is a collector, fan, historian, author of many books on radio, But he was there, and in a review of the conference on his blog, he touched on this issue of varying perspectives. It's an excellent piece. We'll link to it in our show notes. I did get a chance to talk with Wendy Shea, audiovisual archivist at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution. Getting the archivists and the researchers together was really, really interesting. So I hope that the researchers got quite a bit out of it. I think that the archivists did too, or at least I did, to find out what kind of research people are doing, which I just was blown away by some of the really fascinating radio materials people were looking at. It wasn't all Fibber, McGee, and Molly. At the same time, the conference revealed, and thus made it possible to begin closing, a gap in the perspectives and knowledges between archivists and scholars. What really was interesting is that you all were following incredibly interesting paths, but they seemed to be more torturous than some of them needed to be because some of the material you may have been looking for may well have been in the archives, but it didn't sound like you were using, or some of the researchers were using the simple resources um, like Archive Grid or Finding Aids or looking... I don't remember who said looking in the logical places, but it's also worthwhile to look in the illogical places. 
There are a lot of archives where there is radio hidden within them, that radio is not their primary focus. And I think that through finding aids and through being really creative, the researchers will have an opportunity to find the materials they're looking for. As Wendy suggests, the conference was an opportunity for conversations that don't ordinarily happen at your typical academic conference. At the same time, the conference was also a planning session, with groups of specialists strategizing about next steps on how to preserve what we found so far. Josh and I talked about what the future holds. So the goal for the conference is really to commence quite a few initiatives we've been working on for about a year. One initiative would be uh, the initiation of grant writing in which research faculty with specialties in everything from Spanish language and bilingual radio and African-American civil rights radio, sports radio, all of these different topics, uh, labor radio, that are very important. We have the appropriate faculty specialists working with the appropriate archives towards preservation, a simple act of preservation of the materials. Next, what we'll do is we'll build a big data system, metadata system, and everything that we find will either leak to or we'll be able to place in fair use, which we'll have to work out over the next couple years, on this big data search engine. And from there, we hope we'll also be adding different curricular materials going all the way down to primary school, up through graduate school. And as we all know, in media history, uh, there's very little non-theatrical sound history taught for one, very little local history taught for two. And we hope to really increase just the curriculum for SCMS media history-related type classes. And this is one of our really big goals, is to inflect the curriculum, but not just that, but get students at a very young age who should be introduced to these important historical events who are in some ways and not in others. Fast forward 10 years. Best possible outcome. What have you? What has this achieved? So 10 years, um, I... I hope there's a new director, because uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, but I would say in 10 years, what we would really be looking at is a big data search engine with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of samples and full recordings of non-theatrical events and local narr- narrative-based and storytelling and live performance radio shows, and that it's easily accessible and that the estates associated with the recordings are happy that it's being shared. And then from there, uh, that we simply know where materials are that aren't digitized yet. So simply just having a map of where things are, and then lots and lots of samples and opportunities to use those samples, uh, and then having it just be a resource for the field is is the goal. And and not just for the field, but really in a public culture kind of way. It's a a public communication endeavor uh, in, in this way. We were hoping that people who just love radio will also use the site. Here I'll briefly acknowledge a few of the key people involved in the Radio Preservation Task Force, in addition to Chris Sterling and Josh Shepard. There are a bunch of people, but I'll just give a shout-out to Michelle Hilms, Cynthia Myers, Sean Vancour, Derek Valiant, Amanda Keeler, Neil Verma, Allison Perlman, and Ines Casillas. If you have any interest in getting involved or helping out, or you just know of a great trove of sound or radio recordings, please contact one of those people and let them know. And I want to close by giving you this. As I spoke with people at the conference, I always asked them, what's a piece of radio or sound that gets you really excited and that you would use to show people why this matters and why it's so important what the Radio Preservation Task Force is doing? I got a lot of great answers, but the one I found most moving came from Gerald Seligman. When I myself do presentations, I I always try to think, well, what are some of the examples that I can use to show 
what's the importance of audio preservation? And one of the ones that I found that's most moving is this man by the name of Fountain Hughes. He begins by saying, my grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. Talk for who? Well, just tell me what your name is. My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. So here was a man with a, a direct link to America's original sin, slavery and to a, a founding father of the American nation speaking to us. Even talking about it now, I get chills. Hearing it is the most remarkable thing you can imagine, the, you, because you are in the presence of this human being. And um, it brings it home in a way that, that somehow no other media does. such an ambitious project they've got going there. It's so cool. So ambitious and so very important. I thought Bill's piece really got across why this is important. And even if you're not, of course, a radio scholar, um, maybe if you don't even listen to the radio much, if you are a media scholar, you understand the importance of preserving these incredible um, historical documents and, and uh, artifacts. And so I think that piece made a really great case for the importance of doing that with, with radio. Yeah, I was just teaching 1980s college radio mm. um, this past week. And um, just setting it up and prowling around, of course, and trying to find old air checks and stuff like that. And there's some good information, but um, it would be really, really, it will be really mm. great to have a centralized resource that gathers together some of these materials. Yeah. And maybe someday someone will make an effort to preserve the ACA Media podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Radio silence. Uh, one final note. We, uh, we also wanted to thank, there were a couple of interviews Bill conducted. He couldn't work them into the interview, and he wanted to make sure those folks got thanks. So that was uh, NPR's Laura Sotabara and Julie Rogers. So um, thank you to them as well. All right, so next up now, we've got another piece by a new contributor. This is from Riel Nowitzki. She is the secretary of the Latino Latina Caucus, and her group is undertaking interviews similar to the Field Notes Project to explore the historical legacy of Latino Latina studies and the founding of the caucus. So the caucus co-chairs, Luisela Alvarai and Laura Isabel Serna, uh, conducted these interviews with some of the founders of the Latino Latina Caucus, and then Riel edited together this piece complete with an introduction so we can let her take it away. Take it away. Within the organizational structure of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, a series of caucuses function to advocate for and create community among historically underrepresented groups within the organization, the discipline, and the academy more broadly. These include the African, African American Caucus, Asian, Pacific American Caucus, Caucus on Class, Middle East Caucus, Queer Caucus, and Women's Caucus. One of the first caucuses to be created within the structure of SCMS was the Latino Latina Caucus. Originally conceived to address a lack of racial and ethnic diversity within the organization, 
It was soon expanded to support and promote research on Latin American and Latino film and media, a historically under-researched area within the field. Over the past year, the co-chairs of Latino Latina Caucus, Luisela Alvaray and Laura Isabel Serna, have been coordinating a series of oral histories with the scholars who played a pivotal role in the creation of the caucus in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when SCMS was still SCS, the Society for Cinema Studies. In this segment, you'll first hear from Margarita de la Vega Hurtado, former executive director of the Flaherty Film Seminar, who discusses the early history of the caucus in an interview recorded by Camilo Gonzalez. After studying film and communications in her native Colombia, she completed a PhD in American Studies at the University of Michigan. In the late 1980s, she began to encounter scholars who shared her interest in Latin American and Latino film and video, including Charles Ramirez Berg. At that time, he was completing a PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is now a professor of media studies. He describes his role in the early history of the caucus in conversation with SCMS Board of Directors member Mary Beltran, also of the University of Texas at Austin. A video of the full conversation between the two, filmed by Mark Spear, is now available on the Field Notes X page of the SCMS website. Field Notes X extends the work of SEMS's Field Notes Project, a series of oral histories with scholars who have shaped the formation of the discipline. I got my PhD in 1992. American Studies had already established a program in Latina, Latino Studies, the first one probably in the U.S. with that title, as a difference from Mexican-American or Chicano or Puerto Rican studies. So I presented papers from early on, and in 1988, I went to present a paper in Cornell, which was the first uh, that I had heard of where all the papers were about Latinos and Latino representation. There I met Charles Ramirez Berg, who was teaching at UT in Austin, and we talked about the importance of Latinos within cinema studies and how it could become more relevant and would be a way of getting people to be aware that there was a whole field that was generally ignored and disregarded within the film culture in the U.S. I attended my first SCMS, SCS, SCS yeah. in 1987, which was uh, mm. Montreal. And uh, I was just graduating with a Ph.D. and all of that. Uh, and I had done a PhD dissertation on Mexican cinema, and there was one panel at uh, Montreal uh, where, uh, you know, was looking, I think, at Latin American cinema and so. And so that was my first introduction to SCS, and what, I, what occurred to me, um, which was later validated by others, uh, like Chon Noriega, um, that there wasn't a whole lot of diversity in the membership. And so um, that was kind of the conversations that he and I would have, you know. And I think his first SCMS was maybe 89 in there somewhere, 88, 89. And he was also finishing up his, his dissertation around the same time. 
So uh, from, I guess, maybe those conversations, that's maybe how it started. Sure. But it, so, you know, uh, Chon and I are, were the first co-chairs and co-founders, I guess. But I have to take my hat out to Chon because it was all Chon. I was his mm. assistant, but he's the one that had the idea. And, and Chon is very, uh, very good at things like that. He understands, he just has this knack for understanding how organizations work and how to get organizations to work for you, you know, mm -hmm. and, and who to ask and what to ask and when to ask and all of that. So um, it was his idea. And I responded and I said, yeah, yeah, I, you're right. And, you know, uh, I must have said something like, let me know what I can do or if you need some help or whatever. And uh, next thing I know is he said, okay, uh, you and I are going to found, you know, the Latino caucus. And later on, just to tell you uh, how... Uh, whimsical history can be. Later on, I asked him, I mean, how did you and how did I get to be co-founder? And he said, oh, you're the only one that answered my, my mail. <laughs> you know, I put out this call, you're the only one that, oh, okay. So, I mean, you know, it just, I just happened to, you know, to say, okay. So, uh, so <clears throat> he says, uh, okay, so what we need to do is we need to request uh, $200 for the Latino caucus from um, the board, uh, the executive board. Uh, and I, I don't think I was a member yet. I was elected to the board, um, I think in 91. So this was probably right before that. And, and we're gonna ask for $200 for the next, you know, uh, for the next one, which is gonna be in Washington, DC. That was the 1991, you know. So this must have been in 89 when we were concocting all of this. And just to show you how mm -hmm smart Chon is. I, I really admire his savvy, just in terms of, like I say, organizations and how they work and all of that. Um, and I remember telling him, Chon, I mean, what can we do with $200? I mean, that's, that's nothing. And he, his answer was, the amount doesn't matter. What matters is that we become a line item in the budget. Hmm. And he's absolutely right. He said, once you're a line item and it's $200 or whatever, then next year you're on the budget and you exist and you have a validity and you have an identity and everybody knows that you're there. You know, it's like yeah. you exist. And they give us the $200. And I remember at that 1990 conference, uh, so what we did with the $200, you know, what are we going to do with the $200? Oh, we're going to have a meet and greet. We're going to have wine and cheese. And it was at 5 o'clock some evening and mm -hmm. Sean and I get there at 4.30 and we're, you know, um, setting things up and all that stuff and wondering if anybody is going to show up, you know. And lots of people showed up. It was immediately mm -hmm. successful, you know. And uh, right after that, we got a lot of assistance from Ana Lopez, who's at Tulane still and was then, and Margarita uh, de la Vega Hurtado, who was at Michigan. And, you know, and they chipped in and they really helped a lot just in terms of helping out, you know, just assisting us to put it together. So then what happened, what we realized, and I think partially from who turned up at the, at the wine and cheese meet and greet, we realized, so initially it was a diversity kind of initiative. You know, let's try to get, you know, some diversity. Let's try to get some Latinos, students, graduate students, and, uh, and faculty members. But then we realized we should also be uh, open to people who are doing 
research on Latinos in media, film, television, whatever, in the States and in Latin America, because there's a lot of people. And, and, and then we realize, oh, just because you're Latino doesn't mean you're gonna be researching Latinos. You can be researching horror films or whatever you want, mm -hmm. right? But we still want you. And just because you're not Latino, you could still, you could be looking at, you know, um, Latino stereotypes or Mexican cinema or something. So, and we want you too. So then, then we realized the kind of the research focus was also part of it. So if you're interested in Latinos in media, here or abroad uh, in Latin America, we're interested and come and join us. And that kind of solidified what we were about at the time, you know, it just, uh, and then, then it was a lot of people and then it mm -hmm. was a lot of fun and uh, we were exchanging ideas and it was very open and it was an exciting time. You know, I must say SCS was very welcoming and they're very supportive. Mm -hmm. And once we got the, the caucus going, they were really, I mean, just a hundred percent supportive. It wasn't, uh, mean-spirited at all it wasn't you know it, it was they just it hadn't occurred to them you know to you know, oh yeah mm -hmm. and I think if it had occurred to them they would have said yeah but how exactly do we do it and then you know uh, along came Chon you know <laughs> and you know yeah. and, and 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 Anna and Margarita you know so um, and and we kind of showed them well, you know, I think that it was a really important time and that, yeah. that the caucus made inroads in teaching um, scholars of film mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, film starring Latinos, by Latinos, about mm -hmm. Latin America and Latinos in the U.S., that there was a, that, that they had a place at the table. Mm -hmm. No, no, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, we didn't quite feel that way in the late 80s when we were attending, you know. Okay, once we had the idea of the caucus, it was formed slowly. We contacted people that had been teaching Latin American cinema for a long time, invited very quickly Ana Lopez, Julianne Burton, Bob Stamm, and other scholars to be part of the group, and they were very important in supporting our work and also because they could bring in their graduate students. And the caucus grew, the papers and the number of panels at the conferences was more important. And in general, people started making Latin American cinema and Latino studies a part of the study of film and television. It was difficult to establish the idea and the to clarify that there was Latin American cinema, but there was also Latino cinema made in the United States, and to talk about those differences. And for me, it was really important because I'd been involved in that from early on, because I'd gone to Cuba to the Havana Film Festival early on, and I remember seeing Jesus Triviño talked about the idea of Chicano cinema, and I had already read about that, and that's also where I met Lourdes Portillo for the first time, which is, I think, one of the great Chicano filmmakers of any gender. Thus, we raised the importance of Latino cinema in the United States, because our participation in SCMS was not only to present papers and have panels, but also to present films. And we made an integral part of the planning that we would show films and bring some of the filmmakers. And so we brought uh, El Atroyano, we brought Lourdes Portillo, we brought a lot of filmmakers, both from 
the U.S. and Puerto Rico and try to bring some from abroad with difficulty because of the funding. But we did always try to talk about both. Uh, so let me just mention some of the filmmakers we brought in. Besides Lourdes Portillo, we brought in Paul Espinosa. We brought in Francis Salome España. We brought in Mario Barrera, uh, who was at Berkeley. Um, Isaac Artenstein, uh, the, you know, um, going back to that line item, you know, we just, yeah. you know, it doesn't, the yeah. amount doesn't matter. The, being a line item matters. Um, that one stroke created um, a space for all of this, this to happen, mm -hmm. the work that you do, the work that I do, uh, a space where it would be um, understood and uh, and appreciated and all of that and validated and all of those kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, which I think w was just as important as the interpersonal stuff and all of that, just that, that it kind of validated this area, you know, and this, and this focus of research and study, you know, it just like, it made it all uh, equal, you know, and so I'm talking about film studies back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and a lot of it was, you know, the great films and the great filmmakers and a lot of that, you know. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, as we know, a lot of those were Hollywood and male and, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and just creating a space where, you know what, this is also part of film studies and media studies, uh, this, you know, Latinos and, and how they're represented and, uh, and Latino stars and Latino filmmakers and uh, the, the, the movement that they joined and all of that, you know, it just kind of validated all of that within film studies, I think. So um, that little, you know, line item, you know, kind of uh, had repercussions, I think, that were really good for you know for mm -hmm. people like you and me you know who right. do this kind of work you know now it's an area and it's recognized and it's you know uh it's, it's understood as yeah well yeah latino representation in film and in media yeah 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 right. but it wasn't always like that you know, so right and in the first years was there uh were there a larger um percentage of members that were graduate students there was because yeah, yeah. because um, you know the 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 faculty uh, you know uh, were it, the ones who were involved uh, were the ones who were doing Latin American cinema so you know so Ana mm. Lopez was doing Cuban cinema and things like that so um, they were involved but so one of the things we were trying is to give the graduate students a place to go to you know and yeah. and kind of a, a goal, you know, oh, you know, here is a body of work and here are some people who are doing that kind of research and that kind of work and mm -hmm. you can join in on that, you know, and kind of showing them that it exists and, and it's okay to do and all of that, you know, and, and it's important to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 we needed to do it. So w I think we understood. And and gosh, and we used to have these conversations too. I can remember having these conversations with Sean. I mean, just uh, we, you know, how are we going to get more graduate students here? You know, and it was almost a question of generations. You know, I I, right. I finally realized, gosh, I think we need one more generation. You know, one more generation of. Um, Latinos, uh, Latino families sending their kids to college who then go, go to graduate school and end up 
with us and, and you know right. and, and get their MFAs or get their PhDs or get their masters or whatever and so and I think it's happened you know but right it's pretty yeah. remarkable yeah 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 well, to think really of well. of of you as at the time you were graduate students not having faculty mentors right who yeah. could say oh just do you know do what I'm doing and yeah, yeah, and yeah. this is the way. Well, you know, and when so, I did yeah. uh, when I did my dissertation, which was on Mexican cinema, I don't know if there was another dissertation ever on Mexican cinema, you know, ever in the United hmm. States. Um, it was the first, it went on to be published as a book, but it was the first book of criticism in English of Mexican film. The first ever. Okay. Um, I mean, how can that hmm. be? You know, how, right. you know, there's all these books on Japanese cinema, you know, Swedish cinema, Italian cinema. Yeah. Uh, so that just goes to show you hmm. uh, that's not the case anymore. Okay, now if you go and you look Latino, Latinos in film, Latinos in media, um, both here in this in the states and Latin America. I mean, there's shelves of those. You know, mm -hmm. But once upon a time, it right. wasn't like that. Yeah. So do you want to talk about your? Um, sure. Tell sure. us a little bit about, so how you got involved with uh, SCS, and was it SCS or SCMS? It, when you... I think it was SCMS, maybe had just become okay. SCMS um, in, around the early 2000s. Okay. When I uh, first first went to a conference. Okay. And I was encouraged by you and perhaps also by Federico, and Federico was yeah. still here, yeah, yeah. to attend the caucus, and I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very supportive group of faculty and, and graduate students that were working on you know, Latinos in film and media and yeah. um, Latin American cinema. And it was immediately just a supportive, a supportive group to be a part of. And, yeah. and in some ways, it, it, it was a bit of a oasis in the middle of the conference, which, mm -hmm. you know, is still a mostly white, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps even upper middle class mm -hmm. um, group of scholars, mm -hmm. although, uh, you know, a, a nice, a nice group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it was very easy to get, get involved. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, I think it's that the caucus has changed somewhat as the need has become less dire ah, to, okay. to, you know, as, Talk a little bit about as, that. as those of you yeah. that started the caucus became um, established faculty, um, you've mentored uh, you know a number of different scholars along the way, and have made such inroads that I think it's a little easier you yeah. know to be a Latino scholar or a scholar looking at Latinos in media. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still a very social, uh, supportive group. Um, I think in some ways it's becoming a bit more of a SIG, you know, a scholarly interest group, oh. which they also huh. have at mm -hmm. SCMS. It's a bit more focused now probably on the work mm. than on um, surviving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 2012, I came back to the Society of Cinema Studies, and I had never been totally apart, but I came back to the meeting in Boston. Unfortunately, I could only stay for one day. And it was amazing to see how important the panels were, how many there were, how many papers were also in some of the most important panels discussing theory, history, and matters of importance to the field as in general. So as a Latina and a Latin Americanist, I was really delighted and proud to see how far 
we had managed to earn our place that we always had deserved within the field. I'm so glad to, to be able to have this kind of content in our, in our podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of institutional memory and a lot of experiences of SCMS that, that we don't necessarily have direct access to. And so it's really nice to have these kinds of pieces that, that draw attention to the work that some of our members are doing. Yeah, and we strongly encourage anyone else out there, if you're part of a caucus, if you're part of a SIG, if you're part of a particular area of research that you haven't heard on Acamedia yet and you would like that to be represented, let us know. You can do some interviews. You can put together a segment. We are really open to having more contributors, bringing us more voices, more perspectives, more history, more culture on Acamedia. That's right. Are you watching anything good? Oh, my God. The... You know, the, the, it's the time of the semester where we're so busy, and so all the shows I would usually be watching, um, I'm not watching right now, so Better Call Saul, I'd love to be watching that, and I have no time. Um, I've been behind on Good Wife, um, you know, just barely keeping up with that. Um, there is one show I refuse to set aside for work, uh, unfortunately it's a daily show, a daily show, um, but that's EastEnders, the British soap yeah. opera. Um, which has just become one of my truly great pleasures in life. And there's two components to it, because first of all, then I watch EastEnders, and then secondly, I tweet about it with a British scholar and friend on Twitter, Faye Woods, um, who's watched for many, many years. And so I just love, this is sort of my nighttime ritual. I will lie in bed with my iPad watching EastEnders, and then I send Faye a tweet. She's, of course, asleep. Um, and then when she wakes up in the morning in London time, or excuse me, uh, England time, um, she'll reply, and we have these sort of, you know, interestingly time-shifted discussions of EastEnders, but it's one of my great pleasures in life. Um, incidentally, I got to write about it for Notre Dame Magazine. That it should be out soon. We can put a link up on our website when that comes out. But it was a great joy. In fact, the issue was about joy. They were looking for the theme, mm -hmm. I think, was the idea that you know, 2015 was a pretty heavy, depressing year, and they wanted to ask people to write about things that great, gave them great joy. And for mm -hmm. me, watching EastEnders, tweeting about it with Faye, that's my pure joy. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so that's the one thing I won't set aside for work. Not even for my SEMS paper, which I'm still working on. I'm still going to watch EastEnders, even if I'm not done Good. with my SEMS paper. Good. Yeah. Self-care. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Treating myself. That's good. All right, well, you SEMSers out there, you enjoy yourselves, present well, listen well, mingle well. Slow down and take good clips. There you go. Yeah, be attentive to that. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the DERF Fund at Denison University. And we also couldn't do it without a grant from SCMS. We're also very grateful for the ongoing work of our co-producers. Bill Kirkpatrick down at Denison University, Todd Thompson at the University of Texas. And also thank you to Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick for putting together the piece on the Radio Preservation Task Force. We'll have links to everything he talked about in that piece on our website. And thanks so much to Riel Nowitzki for the piece on the Latino Latina Caucus. Happy travels. Happy spring. Happy spring. Oh, spring. It's a dream.